All right. We're in Acts chapter 22, sort of. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'm going to pull a little bit of a fast one on you. So usually I preach a sermon on Sundays. <laughs> Today I'm going to preach two, but they're going to be shorter and combined into one. So time-wise, it's going to be about the normal, <laughs> but I'm doing two different things, okay? Oh, the children can go to children's church. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they can. There goes one now. How about that? Totally forgot that part. <laughs> Got all into my special announcement. Okay, we are actually going to be looking at Acts 22, but also a little bit in Acts 21, kind of backing up a little bit. So last time we ended with Paul at the top of this massive staircase leading into the great Roman fortress of Antonia, which is adjoining to the great temple that Herod built in Jerusalem. And Paul is wearing chains. He's in, he's in custody. And he's flanked by many soldiers of Rome. And remember how we ended last time? A quiet fell upon the crowd as they were listening. And then we stopped. So um, this hostile crowd. And so he was about to make his case to the hostile, hostile crowd. But you're going to have to wait about 25 minutes for what he said. So <laughs> just kind of hang on because we're going to do the other sermon first, okay? So I'm going to back up a little bit. I have to talk about this because it's really important and because we're here in Acts 21 and 22 it's like majorly significant to this actual text and so every time you come to this text in the future as you're reading through the Bible I want you to remember a little bit of what I'm going to say today. Okay and the subject is really about prophecy and prophecy is a big discussion today about whether or not there are real prophets in the churches today. And by prophet, I mean an individual who speaks the word of God by the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit tells a person something to say. And so that's what I'm, that's a simple kind of definition. Now, of course, there are churches that for many years have taught that there are prophets today. The Pentecostal churches do that. The prosperity gospel preachers all say they're prophets or something even better. So they would say, absolutely, of course, there are prophets today. Now, traditionally, fundamentalists and evangelicals, going all the way back to the Protestant Reformation, Bible people have always said, no, um, there are not prophets today. The Bible is complete. Uh, We have the Word of God, and extra revelation isn't needed anymore because we have everything we need. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, specifically says that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and then pastors and evangelists build on that foundation. So... um, that foundation has been laid so we have the infallible word. Now other people would be a little more open and say well we don't see any prophets and if we measure those claiming to be prophets by a biblical standard nobody we know measures up to that. So they would say I'm open to the idea but if you measure what a prophet is by scripture we haven't seen any yet. And it's entirely true that nobody that claims to be a prophet today measures up to the biblical standard of what it means to be a prophet. They just don't. What is the standard? 100% predictive accuracy. They can foretell the future and they never blow it. That's, That's the standard. If somebody says the Lord told me or if they say the Spirit says or if they say thus saith the Lord, they have to be 100% accurate about what they're going to say or they're not a prophet. Um, That's what the Bible standard is. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 20. Let me read that for you. Deuteronomy 18 20. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or which he speaks in the name of other gods 
either one of those, that prophet shall die. So there's not a lot of people living then that, that did that. So, so he's saying if somebody speaks presumptuously, if they say, thus saith the Lord, and they make some announcement, and God did not reveal that to them, that person should die. You may say in your heart, this is a great question, this is Deuteronomy 18.21, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Like how are we going to know if that's true or not? And he tells you exactly how to know. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Really simple, really simple and clear. You couldn't get more clear than that. It is death to speak as though God has spoken when he has not spoken. And you can tell because if any prophecy fails to come true, then God has not spoken through that person and take them out and stone them. We don't do that anymore, but we do say, I am not afraid of you. We do, we do do that. So God proves prophets by revealing the future to them. That's actually the way he proves that somebody is a prophet. So they cannot be, that can't be faked because Satan doesn't know the future and no human beings know the future. So there's no tricks that can be played upon us. If somebody can tell the future with 100% accuracy, that person is speaking for God. Now, what's changed in the last few decades in the evangelical world, our kind of world, there are people who very much want prophecy to be true today. And they want all the things the New Testament church had from the Lord, they want to have that in today's church as well. So they're very passionate about hearing a fresh word from God and they don't want to quench any of the gifts that God has given or might want for us. So it's not that they don't like the Bible, they just think that in some meaningful way the Spirit should still be allowed to speak and so they propose what I would call a halfway prophet. Are there halfway prophets in the church today? That's really the question. So um, now anybody that says that we have halfway prophets should, should, and that's my word, halfway prophet, um, they've got to prove that scripturally. So that's what they try to do. And, and I want to walk you through that a little bit this morning and then we'll get to Paul on the staircase, okay? So um, why would you say there aren't prophets today? Well, Paul says they're foundational to the church, apostles and prophets. And more importantly, we have the Deuteronomy test, right? So if we asked a person that says there's halfway prophets, we, we, would, we would say, well, what about the test? And they say, we agree there is a test, and we agree that nobody in the church today meets that test. There, we have seen no one that can do that, that can predict the future with 100% accuracy. So, you know, I think most of us would just say, okay, then we're all on the same page. There's nobody that meets that test. But they would say, no, no because they don't like that answer and they want these gifts to be available. So one of the, those key men is Professor Wayne Grudem who uh, wrote a very widely used systematic theology. I've used that. I've taught people through that systematic theology in 1994. He wrote that. But more importantly before that in 1988 he wrote a book called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. And Dr. Grudem is a scholar. He's a really nice man. I mean, I had him for a class one time. I took a class with him. He was great. He was brilliant. He was sweet. And he was, you could tell how tenderhearted he was for the Lord. Just a, a nice, nice man. And he's totally wrong about this. So, so um, the upshot of his book is this. Those tests, the test in Deuteronomy does not apply in our day. That's his, that's his argument. He says that's an Old Testament test. It doesn't apply to the New Testament. New Testament prophets can be wrong. That's the main point of his argument and if we say well how can that be uh, he replies that apostles are infallible in the New Testament but prophets are not 
they, they can fail to hear God accurately or they can f- get confused about wh- what God is saying or God can speak to them and when they tell what he said they can get it wrong and tangled up and uh, what comes sometimes things will come out of their own mind and they, they'll blow it so they can't tell the difference and we have to just be nice to them when they try. So Grudem says Old Testament prophets had clear unmistakable words from God but New Testament prophecy is different it's fallible it's mixed and it's uh, can be confused. So New Testament prophets this is his language now I call them halfway prophets he says New Testament prophecy is not a straight word from God that a prophet's supposed to repeat it's something that God spontaneously brings to mind. So if God sort of if, if something just kind of comes into your head and you think it's that sounds like something everybody should hear to him he says that's New Testament prophecy that's the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. So um, that's a problem. Something God spontaneously brings to mind. It might be God it might be your imagination it's really hard to tell. So I hope you can kind of see the ramification problems of that kind of thinking. Um, You know how the prosperity preachers and the new apostolic reformation false prophets they get away with how do they get away with all their failed prophecies? Because they blow it all the time. They point to Grudem or somebody like him a a real scholar and they say see he says you can be wrong and still be a prophet. So they can blow it as much as they want and still be shepherds and pastors and leaders of their churches because that standard doesn't apply to them. Dr. Grudem said so. So don't hold us to any standard of perfection from Deuteronomy. Don't hold us. That's different. That's old. A scholar said so. That's what they can say. And they do say that. So he gave a sweet excuse to all of these manipulative um, often wild and made up stories and visions that people share and try to manipulate people with. So before we surrender prophecy to Dr. Grudem I just want to kind of I think we should ask a question and that is is there just one example in the New Testament of a prophet a New Testament prophet that failed in his prophecy that, that got messed up and he would say yeah and you go well who's that? He'd say Agabus in Acts chapter 21. So that was the text we looked at last time right? So that's why I'm talking about it today because we were there. So in Acts 21.11 he says that's an example of a failed prophet. So Grudem says prophecies made by Agabus to the Apostle Paul and he used these words this is what the Holy Spirit says. That was how he introduced his prophecy Agabus. He says that was a failed prophecy. So today I'm going to say no that wasn't a failed prophecy. That's what we're here for. That's what we're going to talk about. So here's what it says in Acts 21.11. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said this is what the Holy Spirit says in the way in this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt it was Paul's belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus ties himself up this is what the Holy Spirit says and that's a claim of direct revelation when he says that this is what the Holy Spirit says it's equivalent to an Old Testament prophet saying thus saith the Lord and he says two things are going to happen the Jews will bind Paul in this way and they will deliver him to the Romans and Dr. Grudem says neither of those things happen they didn't happen I know I heard somebody say what? <laughs> we just read about it um, and, and this is what he says the text doesn't say that the Jews bound Paul and the Romans took Paul from them 
so they didn't deliver him to the Romans. That's, that's what he says. Because he's trying to find some way to say that there's still prophecy today even though nobody can match the Deuteronomy standard test. So he's going to have us believe that Luke intended to include a failed prophecy by Agabus. Why? I don't know. Because uh, if, if I was Luke I would say, by the way this prophecy was not properly fulfilled. <laughs> I mean why even bring it up, right? Don't you think he would point that out if it was not a real successful prophecy? But he, he, obviously he doesn't. So let's read what did happen to Paul. This is in Acts 21 verse 30. All the city was provoked. Remember they said that he had brought in somebody that uh, into the, a Gentile into the temple which is totally you don't do that. So everybody was freaking out. They were lying about that. This was a false accusation but the whole city heard about it because there was a huge uproar. And uh, anyway taking hold of Paul taking hold of Paul they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut and while they were seeking to kill him a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. What is that noise I hear of screaming in the temple? At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and he began asking who he was and what he had done. Okay so did the Jews bind Paul and did they deliver him to the Romans? Those are the questions. The Romans put the chains on him here right? It plainly says that. So is that a false prophecy? Well what happened right before that? Well verse 30 it says the Jews took hold of Paul. It says seized him and the ESV it translates it seized him. And it says they dragged him out of the temple. Now they could have used their arms and hands to seize Paul and drag him out of the temple. But they also could have taken his belt or a belt like that and tied up his hands and dragged him out that way. In fact that would be very logical if you're dragging him to bind him in some way. Luke doesn't mention that because he's got a prophecy about it already. We know that that's what happened because Agabus is a prophet. So it's, it's, it doesn't say it didn't happen. It's certainly reasonable that it would be natural to restrain this guy you're going to kill because uh, he might want to run away. But um, it's just a very brief account and Luke has given some details and not other details. So we're probably to assume that they did bind Paul because of Agabus' prophecy. It's a lot easier to control a guy that's bound. Let me just say that. And if he's dragged it's more likely that he was bound because he couldn't walk. So the Romans put chains on Paul, that's true, something more secure than whatever he might have been bound with, um, with a material or something. But he was probably bound already. He was certainly bound by human hands seizing him and he could well have been bound with some other kind of material as well. So I don't think that stacks up too well. Second question, did the Jews deliver Paul? Grudem says no. The Apostle Paul says yes. What do you mean? Well at the very end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28 Paul's in house arrest in Rome and these Jews come and visit him and he tells them what happened to him. This is Acts 28:18. It says brethren though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers yet I was delivered exactly the same verb that Agabus used to describe the Jews delivering Paul. I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So Paul uses the word that he was delivered into the Romans hands. Exact same verb. So Paul says it himself. So Agabus said the Jews would deliver 
Paul into the hand of the Gentiles and Paul says to the Jews that he was delivered into the hands of the Gentiles as well. So if the Roman commander showed up with a large force and these guys were beating on Paul and they're pushing their way through the crowd and they see him there and they say hand that guy over and they hand him over that's being delivered isn't it? So it's a completely accurate prophecy about what happened to the Apostle Paul. There's no problems with that. But if you're trying to float a new doctrine, the New Testament prophets are fallible, you kind of have to assume the worst about how all this is written out and and even the worst about Agabus who was a real prophet. Um, You have to assume also that Luke intended for us to believe that Agabus blew it and there's just zero, zero indication of that. Luke intends for you to understand that what happened to Paul was prophesied by numerous prophets in the church all the way to Jerusalem and the greatest of them was Agabus and we actually have his words given by the Holy Spirit you know straight from the Holy Spirit. So that's I think that whole theory is pretty weak that, that, uh, that that's some kind of a claim there that that's an example of a failed prophecy. It wasn't a failed prophecy. There's other really serious problems with saying that New Testament prophets are fallible. One of them is if you say the apostles are authoritative but prophets aren't, well who wrote the Gospel of Luke? In fact who wrote Acts? Luke was not an apostle. He was a prophet. So how do we know he's trustworthy? Mark was not an apostle. He was a prophet, right? So there are scriptures that we have are, that are from prophets. Well if a prophet is a prophet like prophets always have been in the Old Testament it's perfectly fine for them to write scripture but if only apostles are authoritative in the New Testament era then yeah maybe they were wrong. More seriously than that this idea of of fallible prophets it robs us it it actually takes out of the hands of the church this incredibly valuable text we have in Deuteronomy chapter 18 this standard it it takes it away from us the it's literally stealing from us one of the greatest tools that God has given us to protect ourselves and our churches from false prophets because that if you take the standard away anything goes you have to just guess in fact the, the Deuteronomy standard that's what saved the Protestant Reformation it actually saved the Reformation I don't know if you know that story but when Martin Luther was in the Wartburg Castle dress, growing his beard and dressing like a knight and translating the Bible into German he was hiding out because they would have killed him. He left the Reformation in the hands of Philip Melanchthon who was his aide, his assistant, a great theologian but a very timid man and Melanchthon was running everything in Wittenberg while Luther was hiding out in the Wartburg Castle and these prophets came to town they, from Zwickau, they're called the Zwickau prophets, Zwickau is a town in Germany and the prophets show up and they start taking over and Philip's like this sweet theologian guy and he doesn't know what to do with them and um, they start giving orders and barking everything and saying that they're prophets of God and thus saith the Lord are you a prophet Philip? No I'm not a prophet. Well we are and we're kind of taking over the town here. So and Philip was kind of backing away letting them do it because they had authority. So he writes to Martin Luther and Martin Luther writes back Philip man (laughs) give him the test give him the test Deuteronomy 18 I'm I'm paraphrasing he didn't say it exactly but that's what he did and as soon as one blew it they kicked him out thank God or the whole reformation would have collapsed it really would have so um, that is a valuable precious gift to the church to have that in Deuteronomy so the bottom line is the New Testament never says it never even hints really that a true prophet is in any way 
a New Testament prophet is in any way inferior to an Old Testament prophet. It's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. If a prophet is suddenly very different from what a prophet was for 1400 years since Moses, I think the New Testament would make that really clear if it was new, totally different. It would state that somewhere, oh by the way New Testament prophets can make mistakes. It would say that in the Bible but it doesn't say that. Now I'm not opposed to God raising up a prophet today. We, We know at the end of the age there will be two mighty prophets during the tribulation. And if that's coming soon, it might be, they, they would be alive today perhaps. So there might be guys walking around who are that. But nobody knows who they are if they're here. We don't know them. Nobody's, nobody's uh, stepped forward that way. But if anybody does claim to be them or any other kind of a prophet, I, I not only can, but I have the duty to apply to them the test that scripture gives. And if they don't pass the test, I not only can, but I should ignore them and throw plastic rocks at them. Because <laughs> we can't kill them anymore. But they are either deceived, self-deceived, or else they are deceivers if they think they're a prophet and they're not. And, they, and we can't have them giving orders in the church. So there are no prophets today that, that I know of that pass the test given to us to protect the church in Deuteronomy. One more thing, do I believe that God can speak to people today? Of course God can do anything he wants to do, but that doesn't make you a prophet. Our our brother Dave in his baptism testimony talked about this crucial moment in his life when he was right on the edge and sitting in a church and God spoke to him and that was it for him. Uh, Of course that can happen. God God doesn't have to not talk to anybody, but he's not a prophet. Dave's not a prophet and just because God speaks to somebody or gives direction to somebody doesn't mean that they're a prophet either. The Holy Spirit, how do we say it in modern language? The Spirit laid something on my heart. Okay, well that could be and it might be your own self-deception about something, right? Because I've had people tell me the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart to walk away from my marriage. I mean, you know, people say things like that. So um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but he does, obviously the Holy Spirit moves us, directs us to do things, brings things to mind. I've called people out of the blue that were just on my mind and you find out that they were suicidal at that particular moment. I mean, that's obviously God kind of prompting you and leading you and giving you some, but I'm not a prophet. And that doesn't make me a prophet just because the Holy Spirit might move me a little bit. Those very rare times when God speaks into your life, I mean in a very clear way, doesn't make you a prophet. Another thing, a lot of people believe because they feel something very strongly, it's God doing it. That's not necessarily true either because you are fallible and I am fallible. So you've got to be really careful about those kind of feelings. We had a woman in our church, very dear lady, very sweet, she sang a lot and did some good stuff here, but um, she went through this phase where she one week she would say, God is telling me to leave this church. And I said, oh why, what's going on, you know? And then a week later she'd say, Satan wants me to leave this church. Well I don't think they both give you the same advice. <laughs> so, so in, in, in other words she was a very emotional person and whatever she was feeling really strongly she was ascribing to things outside of herself when really she just was feeling like she should leave her or stay, she would say, God wants me to stay. The two, three weeks later she'd say that. So it, it just kept going back and forth. And I'm pretty sure that in my 31 years of ministry here you've never heard me say God has led me to do something because I don't say that. I just, I don't say it. it and it's not that he doesn't. It's that I don't want to put it in your head that I have this closer walk with God and that he directs me to do all kinds of things and that, and 
You don't have that experience, but I do. I don't want you to have that kind of a, even a feeling. It's, it's really easy for religious leaders to use that as a manipulative tactic, and that happens all the time. You can't question me about this. This is God's leading. How many pastors have said that to people? I mean, uh, our authority comes from the Bible, period. That's it. That's all the authority I've got. Not my feelings or my impressions or whether I think I'm being led to the Lord or not. That's not. See if I, if I go to the elder board and meeting and I say guys this is what we're going to do because I've been led of the Lord. That's not fair. Because what if he led them to say that's silly. No we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> we, have to, we have to labor in prayer and come to a consensus and do those kinds of things you know. You know what else Grudem's theory of prophecy does? It makes church leaders waste a lot of time trying to figure out if people who claim to be prophets gave a false prophecy or a true prophecy in a, in a church meeting. And he actually says that's our job to do that. He says it's the elders job when some prophet gets up and says something to sort it out to weigh it and get together with a crew of guys and figure out whether that was from God or not. Well how in the world would I know that? That's not our job. You know what our job is? Apply the test. If, that, if you're standing up and saying thus saith the Lord then predict something in the future let, let's weigh that and then we'll find out if you are a prophet or not and if you're not a prophet you, don't, you can't get up here and say thus saith the Lord unless you're quoting from the Bible. I'm going to show you one example of how crazy this can get so um, just hold on for one second. So look Matt Chandler has done a lot of great things in the world he's a great pastor of a mega church in Texas he's the head of the Acts 29 network but he, he follows Grudem and he thinks he's I'm going to show you just a two minute clip of him teaching his church that when you if you're praying and something comes to mind spontaneously comes to mind that's exactly the Grudem theory you've got to share it with whoever you were thinking about at that moment. Now imagine doing that or having that experience so go ahead and play it and we'll just kind of see how this flows out here. This is kind of a famous thing that happened. understand what's being said then just let it sit maybe in time God will reveal it to him. What I'm asking you to do is be brave. Ask, hear, step out, approach and just say hey while I was praying the Lord brought you to my mind and, and even if it sounds crazy to you just trust him. So if you're like I, I, I saw Danny Spencer over here and I love him and so I'm just going to use you Danny. Say I'm praying in the morning I'm just like Lord, just bring me somebody to encourage us. I want to be used by you. I want to pursue love. I want to push out darkness. I want to expose the lies of the enemy. And I want to use my mouth to build up your sons and daughters. And he puts Danny Spencer in my mind. And then I don't do that. Well, is that me? Is that, gosh, Danny texted me earlier this week. So am I, is that bad chicken? Is that what, you know, no. He's going, okay, Danny, let's do it. Lord, what would you want me to encourage Danny with? And then I quiet again trying to listen and then automatically in my head there's a picture of a ship, a pirate ship. And then there's, uh, there, there's like cannons on the pirate ship and there's a shark chasing the pirate ship. Now at that point you're like, nope, no, not going to happen. Right? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just step out and you can even admit like we're growing together and we're going to fail and this is going to get weird. It's going to be awesome. Like, I'm just going to go to Danny and I'm going to be like, hey, brother, you heard my sermon. I was praying. Danny, it was a pirate ship. 
It's a shark chasing it. There were cannons. I'm not going to interpret that for him. I'm not going to be like, what I think that means is that maybe you're stealing some stuff from people and Jesus is the shark and you need to repent. I'm, I'm not going to interpret that for him. I'm just going to go. And in a great deal of humility, I'm just going to be, does that make any sense to you? Have you ever had, have you ever, do you ever, anybody here, just in the quietness of your own hearts, while you're praying, has weird thoughts ever come into your head? (laughs) All the time, right? (laughs) So, are you supposed to share them with people? No, it's it's crazy. And can you imagine being in a church where everybody that has a pirate dream while they're praying has to come and tell you about it? And they don't even know what it means either. Pirates, cannons, shark. Just want you to know that, Bonnie. I mean, <laughs> and you figure it out. But it's God's word for you because you came to my mind while I was seeing the pirates. I mean, that is so weird. It, but so you can imagine. And then they've got to take it to the elders and the elders have to sort out whether the pirate thing is real or not really. That's where that leads. And that's, that's like a, he's a very solid person, generally speaking. And it's like, that's where that theory leads. It's crazy. It is crazy. And anyway. He's so wrong to tell people that random images in your mind is a message from God and you should impose it on other people. It's totally wrong. Okay, done with the first sermon. Acts chapter 22. This is a completely separate message. Here we go. We got plenty of time. Paul is at the top of the stairs. So last week we talked about this um, disastrous plan that they had to have Paul prove that he was very Jewish by taking some guys into the temple for your purification ceremony and paying for their their time there and himself maybe going through this purification thing. Um, So the enemies of the gospel of grace, there was a sect of runaway Christians, breakaway Christians that denied the gospel of grace. They denied the apostles. They started their, had their own movement in Jerusalem and they were trying to let them see that Paul was not anti-Moses or anti-temple so they had him go into the temple and do something. That was the plan to kind of take away the bite because they knew these guys were pretty wild. So they were enemies of the true gospel. Especially they said that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That was the biggest thing. And if you remember everything went south because uh, Paul was seen in the temple by Judaizers, that's what they call these kind of people, that were from Asia where he planted churches. They actually were from there visiting the temple and they saw Paul in the temple. And earlier in the week they had seen Paul walking down the street with Trophimus who was a Gentile from those Asian churches and they assumed that he had brought Trophimus into the temple which he didn't do. So either they knew he didn't and they're lying about it or they just freaked out and wouldn't listen. So anyway they, there's this big uproar and they're tearing their clothes and shouting and throwing dust in the air and all of that because he brought a Gentile in the temple which was totally forbidden. So there's this big uproar. So um, the whole population gets outraged because things happening in the temple like that, a riot in the temple basically, it spreads really quickly down the streets and everybody comes rushing in. So now it's no longer just this Jewish sect of Christians, it's actually just all the Jews that live in Jerusalem. The temple's been violated by this guy Paul. What's happening? This guy Paul, he brought a Gentile in the temple. What? And then they get all upset too. So anyway, that's when they're dragging him out of the temple and beating him. They binded him and dragged him out of the temple. I'm going to say that. Um, He was And the Romans heard it, of course, and ran down like we read. And their commander, who's, we call him a tribune, but uh, the actual Greek word is a kiliarch, a a commander of a thousand. And uh, so he'd be like a colonel in a modern army. 
uh, remember he thought Paul was the leader of an Egyptian band of assassins at first. That's who he thought he was, you know. Like what's, who's this guy? And Paul surprises him by speaking fluent Greek and he asks for permission to speak to the mob. So the Romans are literally carrying Paul up this giant staircase leading into their fortress. They stop at the top, the mob's down below going crazy, begging for his death. Soldiers are everywhere surrounding Paul on both sides and the commander says you can speak to them and Paul puts out his hand and they and there's a hush that falls over. That's where we stopped last time. Okay. What's he what's he going to say? He's going to give his testimony. That's what he's going to say. He's going to give his testimony. It's very interesting. You know, there's three times where we have Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts where it happens in chapter 9 then here in chapter 22 and then again in chapter 26 it's so important that we understand what happened to Paul. Luke includes it. Luke's only got one scroll but three times he has the story of Paul's conversion told. Paul isn't just saying what happened to him in this occasion. He's very purposeful about his coming to Christ and he starts off doing he starts off by making a connection with these Jewish people. Look, look how he begins. This is the very beginning, verse 1. And he's, he's saying, I was you once. That's what he's trying to say. I was you once. Brethren and fathers. See, there's not like, hey you Jews. I'm not, I'm not one of you anymore. It's brothers, fathers. I am, I am Jewish. Hear my defense, which I now offer you. That word defense is the word apoly, apologion. Apology. We talk about apologetics. If you're a new Christian or you're kind of unfamiliar with these things, if you hear about apologetics, people, new Christians go, why are you apologizing for our faith? That's not what it means. That word means defend. So it's, uh, that's, apologetics is the defense of the faith. It's the science or art of defending the faith. So um, that's what he's going to present his defense. And he speaks their language. Verse, 20, um, verse 22 says, uh, when they heard, I'm sorry, right after that verse 2 it says when he when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect they became even more quiet that's really good so in verse 2 it's uh, clear now it says Hebrew it's the language of the Hebrews it could be Aramaic not actually Hebrew depending on what you think about what they spoke back then they could, could have been both but the point is the listeners would go he's speaking our language he's not speaking Greek he's speaking our language how did he know the local language verse 3 I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia in Asia Minor, Turkey today, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. He really is one of them, he's saying. Though born in Cilicia, at some point he was sent to Jerusalem for his education. A lot of scholars would say that would be about 14 years old. And he became, as he became older, he, he progressed so far. He was welcomed as a student under Gamaliel who was one of the greatest rabbis in all of Jewish history. There's about six top guys down through history and Gamaliel was one of those. He studied under Gamaliel. So they would all know how great Gamaliel was. Nothing in Paul's upbringing or in Paul's education made him anything other than a super devout Jew. His Jewish credentials are impeccable. And he was zealous, more zealous than they are. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. 
From them I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So like the mob he was speaking to, he was eager to punish anyone who had challenged the ancient path and the great traditions of the faith of Judaism and all the things taught by the rabbis. He was willing to harm, he was willing to imprison, he was willing to kill for that faith. And then something happened. And the thing that happened is what historians have to deal with. I was reading uh, just the other day a a young man who said, you know I took this history class in religion in just a secular school and it talked all about Paul as a Jew and then it talked all about Paul as a Christian and how he totally shaped Christianity and became one of the great founders of Christianity but it never really got too deeply into how that change happened you know and and that's that's the big that's what we're supposed to ask how did that change happen that's why his testimony is given three times in the book of Acts verse 6 every historian has to account for this but it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and I answered who are you Lord and he said to me I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting why do historians need to account for that because Paul changed the world and he says he did it he changed because of the resurrected Christ coming to him and if Jesus didn't change him what did that's that's a historical question what changed him so you know people can say the resurrection of Jesus is a myth they can say that the disciples of Jesus the 12 apostles invented the story or stole Jesus body but how do you explain the head of the Jewish persecution squad saying that Jesus met him on the road. How do you explain that? It changed his life. I mean it completely changed his life. He didn't just switch sides. He didn't just become an angry zealous persecutor of Gentiles or pagans or anything like that. It changed his whole life. He was a zealous, devout, angry man willing to harm people, physically harm people. Cruelly zealous for the law of his fathers. He didn't turn around and become a cruelly zealous Christian his heart was filled with love and gentleness and as it describes in the New Testament he treated people like a a nursing mother how did that happen he met the living Jesus love filled his heart and he was happily willing to not only give up his life of comfort and the respect he had in his community but to suffer all of his life for the rest of his life unto death for this same Jesus. That's an amazing transformation. Verse 9. Those who were with me saw the light to be sure but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said what shall I do Lord? And the Lord said to me get up and go on into Damascus and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do but since I could not see because of the brightness of that light I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus and a certain Ananias a man who 
was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Now we knew about Ananias. We read that story in Acts chapter 9 but notice what Paul says about Ananias. He's speaking to a Jewish group now so he points out how well regarded Ananias was in the Jewish community in, 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 um, in Damascus. So he wants them to see that following Jesus is not anti-Jewish. This guy was already following Jesus. And if you want to go ask in Damascus about Ananias, they'll tell you what a devout Jew he was. That's what he's saying. Verse 13. Anyway, Ananias came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So God sovereignly saved Paul when he didn't want to be saved. (laughs) Had no interest in it. And called him to be a witness for Jesus. And Paul tells of a vision that he had. And where did he have that vision? In the temple. So that's what he's going to say next. Far from being anti-temple this Christian apostle, the Christian Paul went there to pray and God spoke to him there. To him the temple was a special place for prayer. That's what he's going to point out. He's telling his conversion story and what he did afterward. The vision in verse 17 is new information. We don't have that information in Luke chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Verse 17. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me make haste get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said Lord they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, Acts chapter 7, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Verse 21, but he said to me go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God told me in the temple to go bring the message to the Gentiles. Now if the crowd down below was really interested in what God was doing they would have at least listened. But they're in a state. So just like Paul when he was a Pharisee when he was the head of the persecution squad they, they despised Gentiles. I mean Jews in the first century despised Gentiles. They would not eat with them. They wouldn't go under their roof. So prejudice kind of kicks in. As soon as he says Jesus sent me to the Gentiles while I was in the temple. They totally freak out. Verse 22. They listened to him up to this statement. But then they raised their voices and said Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. That is a rejection of what he was saying. (laughs) So he said you know God sent me to the Gentiles because I was going to be rejected here. And here they are rejecting him. How dare he suggest that God loves the Gentiles and the chosen people are not accepted. That they don't accept what God's doing but Gentiles will. That, That strikes at their pride as Jews at their very identity as Jews. So fortunately Paul is now in Roman hands not in their hands because the Romans don't care about religious stuff. 
but is he really fortunate? Well the tribune decides to scourge him, that's a merciless beating. He decides to torture Paul for more information, but before he does that he finds out something amazing about Paul, and that's for next Sunday. (laughs) 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 You can come back. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) Lord you are the Lord of all things, you're sovereign over all things. You ordained Paul's arrest. You ordained that he be placed in chains. You have communicated to us all that we need to know about you. We need to know more than enough to trust you. And it's all right here in this book. And all we need to do is believe it and serve you faithfully. Give us the wisdom to do that according to your word Lead us to your true word in scripture. Protect us from the vain imaginings of men. And may we like Paul be all about the gospel and being a light into the world. Witnesses of your grace, your saving grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.